and welcome to Polly Pages. Books. <laughs> the podcast where genuine Polly people read the texts that have shaped our community and culture. I'm Claire. I'm Andy. And in this bonus episode, we are reading Life History and Multi-Partner Mating, a novel explanation for moral stigma against consensual non-monogamy. This is an article and a piece of original research published on the 21st of January 2020 in Frontiers in Psychology, with the principal author being Justin McGilski from the Department of Psychology, University of South Carolina in South Carolina, United States, and uh, the Department of Psychology, Oakland University, Rochester, Michigan, United States. But before we turn to the article, hi, Andy, where are you? Hi, I am in unceded Dakota Anishinaabe territory in St. Paul, Minnesota in the United States. I am Andy. I use she, her pronouns. I am a cis, white, pansexual, non-monogamous human. I'm a mother, I'm an educator, I'm a lover, I'm a sex worker, and I'm the owner of The Growth Arc. The Growth Arc is a educational community space with the hope of helping people unlearn societally enforced relationship behaviors and expectations. And you can find me at thegrowtharc.com, at thegrowtharc on Instagram, and at thegrowtharc on Twitter. That is Great. I absolutely love your community. Um, I've been following it for like over a year now. So I'm so excited to finally like wrangle you onto my podcast. So obviously we have in front of us a really like academic, like chewy article. Um, <laughs> but I'm really excited to like tear it apart with you. Um, before like we, we like explain what this article is trying to do, like what was your experience of reading it like? I definitely was excited to jump back into, as you described, a chewy academic article. Um, It has been a few years since I've been in grad school, so this is one of the first big academic articles that I've read in a long time. I was not very surprised about some of the findings they found, specifically using the life history theory as a measure. Um, but was excited to see in some of their findings and conclusions, um, their overall, um, how they were speaking about non-monogamy, I felt pretty happy about, um, regardless of what their data was showing. Yeah, I usually try and figure out if the authors are non-monogamous themselves, but um, for various reasons, people are not necessarily as open as like I am about that. Mm. Um, So I couldn't actually tell, but it did feel like it was written from a place that was um, sort of like nascently aware of the variety of non-monogamy, even if that wasn't codified into the actual work, which I liked. Yes, yes, that definitely is something that I was curious about as well. I know that I had emailed your team and asked for a little bit of background because there were a few authors on this article and then um, making some major assumptions. So I'm going to take complete ownership of that. When I was looking at the universities that these were published from, I definitely had a skeptical eye about knowing um, geographically um, where they are and kind of having major assumptions about the society around those universities. Yeah, and as we get into the methodology of this in a little bit, little bit, like a few minutes' time, um, it, it's it's a bias I think also comes through in the respondents to the survey. Um, you mentioned that you've been in grad school. I was just wondering if you could speak a little about about your graduate degree. You have an MA in I want to say human development. 
Correct. So my MA um, um, in human development is one that is not really um, well known. So and I actually really love talking about it. So thanks for asking. Um, my MA is from St. Mary's University here in Minnesota. I actually originally started my master's degree looking to be a principal of a school because my background is in education. Um, finding non-monogamy is actually what pushed me to switch my degree or my master's degree from the educational leadership principal route to um, creating my master's to be able to run the growth arc or do work that I'm doing with the growth arc. The Human Development Program at St. Mary's is actually a build-your-own master's program, which was really, really awesome and had um, its own um, specific um, hardness to, to getting through it because you get to kind of piece together what it is that you would like a master's degree in and you have to be able to defend that to a board, a small review board, and to your um, advisor, I guess, would be the right word for that. And what was really cool about the human development program, I do know that St. Mary's has now renamed this Build Your Own program from human Debe development to something else. So I apologize for not knowing that new name. But um, if there was not a course that was available to you or a professional development space you could go to and defend and um, you could write your own course, um, but you would I had to write my own syllabuses, write my own assignments, defend why each assignment and each course would be a certain amount of credits worth of learning and then I would have to get that approved by my advisor in a board at St. Mary's. And then I would have to go do all of the things that I had wrote, written for myself um, for a master's course. That is like fascinating. What a, what a completely different and really involved way for you to like shape your own educational experience. Yes, it was beautiful. <laughs> um, it actually also was really cool because it gave me a golden ticket um, to be able to take MA classes and any other program at the university. And so I was able to take classes in the marriage and family therapy program. I specifically took the couple that are focused on couples therapy. Um, so that was really, really awesome to know how the people that are going out into the field to work with couples specifically were being trained at the university level. So I kind of had an understanding of what was happening in that space, because one of my major goals with the Growth Arc is to help build curriculum for helping people in the um, in the marriage and family therapy world on working um, more successfully with people that are non-monogamous. Yeah, so important. Um, I know that they even reference it in this article that having having access to a therapist that sort of affirms instead of like makes an issue out of your relationship status is like one of the the key barriers for people who are conceptually non-monogamous to actually gaining um, that resource. Others, of course, being things like fear of stigmatization and um, also obviously socioeconomic barriers. Um, so I think that's amazing work. Um, thank you so much for telling me more about it. Um, we should pivot to this article though. I'm wondering if you want to hear about life history theory. Yes, I. Um, as I briefly mentioned to you before we hit record, um, this was one of my first real full dive into reading 
about life history. So I'm excited to hear more. Yeah. So from my research, what I can tell is that life history theory has come from an evolutionary biological background. So it was a way of understanding the way that evolutionary biology and evolutionary ecology interact together. Um, So, for example, if an organism had a very short lifespan, you would traditionally see that organism reaching maturity and reproductive um, peak much sooner in their lifespan than an organism that had quite a long life. Uh, So, for example, like an elephant's got a very, very long life. They have a 10-month gestation period, and it takes them several years to get to the point where they can begin reproductive activities, whereas like a mayfly lives (laughs) very, very uh, short life, reaches its maturity within, like, I think, a number of hours, and then is immediately reproductively active. So this is where life history was first laid down. Mm. And then recently, there have been moves to apply a life history lens into intra or organism I have to be careful to say that correctly <laughs> intra organism um ideas of like the the strategies of of people um not people but i guess uh individual cases within an organism so for example if you take a fish and then have a, a fish of the same species in in a, a, a more hostile environment um, they begin to adopt different what's called within this theory life strategies. So the one that is living in a very comfortable, very amiable, benign environment might uh, show, for example, the peak of their, their sexual drive much later in their life than the same species within yeah. a very hostile environment where there is lots of competition or there is lots of environmental uh, issues like bacteria, microbes. I'm not a fish expert. <laughs> all the fish vets shouldn't be writing in. (laughs) And uh, of course, it was only really a matter of time before people started applying that to human life. So Uh the human life history theory, I guess you could call it, is this idea that um, we adopt different strategies based on the environments that we find ourselves in. So if we find ourselves in environments where uh, there is a lot of poverty, there is a lot of disease, um, we will tend to favor life strategies that are a lot faster. So we will um, try and find uh, partners and make babies uh, quicker, we'll try and make more of them, sort of like hedging the evolutionary bet with quantity. Mm. Whereas if we were in a very benign environment with very low disease rates, very low mortality rates of children, we might take a lot longer to um, have our children might birth space them so we can give a lot more individuated care and attention to the children between the births um, as an example Mm. Um, so that's kind of like an evolutionary bet of like quality you could say this is kind of like the the thing that they're talking about in this uh, paper is what they call fast life strategies so strategies that are designed to help you deal with uh, hostile environments and slow life strategies. So strategies that are designed for like kind of taking your time and making investments of that time into one or two or three, um, well, usually children. Uh, obviously there are whole like podcasts about this. So I'm gonna put here a resource for anyone who wants to know more about life history theory. It's the Here We Are podcast. I'll, I'll put it in the show link uh, in which Sarah Hill sits down with the host of that podcast who talks all about her research in life history theory. Amazing. I'm going to have to check that out too. 
Do you have any questions about what I just said? I hope I did. I didn't even have any notes. So that was just all off the top of my head. I think that sounds amazing. And I um, really appreciate you taking the time to, um, to explain that. I was definitely getting a little bit lost. And I wonder if any other listeners that haven't listened to that podcast or spent some time were feeling a little bit lost there too. I definitely feel like I understood a little bit of that hard life or easier life or like fast, fast life or slow life kind of things. Um, A lot of my notes were around the biases around putting them in that binary, those two binary categories, but that really helped me. So thank you. I think it is important to note that life history theory does operate on a continuum. So it's not like you have an either or binary. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't think that that comes across strongly in this paper, which is actually one of the critiques I have. So I do want to like stress that, that usually there is like, it's a discussion of continuums, right? We all live along this um, and, so it, as opposed to being like you're either in a hard place and therefore doing like quick, fast life strategies or you're in a good place and you're doing slow, like they fluctuate um, over the period of an organism's life and, of course, over the evolutionary space life, like lifespan of a species as well. Mm. So um, I think that's what makes life history quite a difficult theory to be applying and it's strange for them to be applying it in this novel way. Right. Because in this paper, the authors are trying to use a life history theory framework to predict the kind of like psychological uh, prejudicial uh, issues that people may have with people in consensually non-monogamous partnering. Is that probably a good definition of what they're doing in this paper? I think that that um, is a very good uh, summary or (laughs) you know, quick way to, to describe what they, what they're doing here. Um, I do think it's really an interesting and a very important, um, piece of research to be trying to figure out how to, I mean, my hope with this would be that they would, um, use this as education for people that do maybe have stigma, um, and helping them figure out where that stigma is coming from and, and why they're being, um, either stigmatizing in the first place yeah i definitely think that that is um, a good future like for this type of research because one of the things that um that obviously most people face when they come out as as non-monogamous or polyamorous is is a certain level of stigma and understanding that stigma is part of the the process of like breaking it down um Mm -hmm. and making resources more available and we've already spoken about the barrier the stigma can be to to something like marriage counseling as you mentioned earlier mm-hmm. but yeah the this i mean that that's what they're trying to do right they're trying to explain that people are going to have stigmas towards people in consensual non-monogamous partnerships because they are going to perceive that as like a fast life strategy and therefore associate it with lots of other traits that people that have fast life strategies tend to have um, mm-hmm. which I think is where this becomes a, a little bit shaky, um, <laughs> if you ask me. Um, yeah. Because the thing is with like the strategies framework is that we're not just talking about what people do and their, their behaviors and activities, but we are in danger of also speaking about what people are in terms of like predispositions. Yeah. Um, and I'm always so wary of something that tries to like make everyone like tar with this brush. 
tall with this brush. <laughs> but that's that's definitely something that they're trying to like unpack in this. Yes, definitely. I think that I'm sure we have some of the same notes around the wariness of that, of those labels and of um, kind of just um, using this, this theory um, in general definitely has some of those um, holes. Okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the methodology before we begin to poke a bunch of holes in it. Shall we try that? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. Okay, so um, as I said, this this is the primary author on this is uh, Justin Mogilski, um, but it is written by like a bunch of people. So also also Virginia Mitchell, Simon Reeve, Sarah Donaldson, Silas Nicholas, and Lisa Welling. And uh, their primary data was collected through basically a big old survey. Um, mm -hmm. They collected uh, participants for that survey via social media, including Facebook, Reddit, and Twitter, and from an undergraduate college population. Um, and they received, once they had uh, corrected for double entries and removed people who were non-consensually non-monogamous, they had a total of 783 participants with a mean age of 23.49 years. 91.6% point, of which came from the USA and 70% of which were from Michigan. And also the majority of those respondents were female, 600 being female and 153 being male. Um, and they use only the, the sex as the covariate for, uh, for those surveys. So even though they did collect gender, race and uh, place of origin, they didn't use those as covariates for analyzing their responses to the survey. Yes, which I which I definitely had some issue with. I also noticed that, um, as you said, they collected the data on race, but they didn't really address it other outside of that. And I noticed that they had mentioned that you know, 80, 82%, 80, you know, almost 83% of the participants identified as white. Yeah. So what we have here is a really like white American woman mm -hmm. based survey. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm like really disappointed that they didn't use race, um, gender or age or point of origin to use as a covariate so it, to enable them to analyze the answers against it. Because the other thing that I highlighted from like the demographic was that once they had split those people into either monogamous, multi-partner, or open, which we'll explain in a minute, um, but once they split them into those three, I don't know if you picked up on this, but the, the age differential changes drastically. Yes. <laughs> like the number of people who are monogamous, their average age is like 20, 21, whereas the people who are in a okay. multiple partner relationship are more like 31, 32. And so I was like, so maybe age could begin to explain some of the findings later on. But that wasn't like, I can only infer that because they haven't used that data. Oh, absolutely. What did you think of their, of their coding of monogamous, multi-partner and open relationship? I thought it was really interesting. The biggest note I wrote in this section of the article, I'm like specifically looking at what my print off on page six. And, um, you know, in the participants section of it before the materials and procedures section, mm -hmm. I um, wrote down like, why are they not self or how were they self-identified or like what was going on on there? Um, I think that there is so much stigma around the word open relationship right now, at least in America and with the growth art community that I specifically work with. 
And so I, I found that to be a really interesting, um, interesting way to, to collect that data. I'm trying to think of like how else I would, would have done it though. And I was glad that they um, took out those that were non-consensually non-monogamous for sure. Yeah, I was happy with that as well, because we have had bonus episodes on here before where they didn't control for that. And I'm like, well, stop, stop mixing right. this all in. Like we're all different. Um, and they do make pains in their discussion to kind of like explain that more rigorous, uh, like taxonomy, if you like, of consensual non-monogamy would be mm-hmm. beneficial for science. They say that on page nine, nine of my copy, but I think our page numbers are different. And they've, they've pointed to a couple of guys, but obviously none of them are like fully like backed, right? Um, which is something that on this podcast, because we're about non-monogamy acting mm-hmm. research, we come up against all the time. It's like there just isn't a perfect taxonomy because um, obviously it's just, this is not only like thought of as an emerging field, but it's also something that people change, right? Like you might go through a period of, being monogamous into a period of being non-monogamous into an open relationship, then close the relationship again. Like it's very fluid. And I think there's also like a lot of um, interest in people, like from people who are non-monogamous to keep that fluidity somehow being represented. But um, it's a, it's a really hard line to walk. And I think they did a, a good job trying to, to walk that line. Absolutely. It's not perfect. Yeah, I agree that they um, did a good job of, of referencing that there is, wasn't really a, a perfect way to do that. And there was many other um, ways that people identify in that consensual non-monogamous space. And I agree that that conversation around not really wanting labels or boxes is a big part of why pe- a lot of people choose non-monogamy. So that would make the uh, number crunchers and, and data data gatherers um, go a little crazy and definitely is something that I see um, create some disharmony when we don't have like one definition or one way or, or even just three different ways. Right. Um, but what, what they did with this is they then, they had these three categories of people, um, and they used sex, biological sex, and they asked a bunch of questions, um, which I'm not going to go into each of them because they basically take about seven different analytical questionnaires and put them into one huge survey, uh, along with a, um, puberty timing self report, um, but I'm going to pick out just the, the three parts that I think later they draw on for their results, mm-hmm. if I may. Um, so first of all, they they are trying to use the PVD, so this is Perceived Vulnerability to Disease, which is a way to basically capture chronic concerns about the susceptibility that you have as an individual to infectious disease transmission. And this is pre-COVID, by the way. <laughs> Right, because right. now I imagine this would be very different. Yes. Uh, and in that, they ask uh, basically for two things, but the one that I'm going to draw on is about germ aversion. So they ask things like, I dislike wearing used clothes because you do not know what the last person who wore it was like, mm. with an anchor of one to disagree, seven to strongly disagree, with the highest scores uh, showing perceived greater vulnerability to disease. Then they also used risk-taking, which is called DOSPERT, all of these fun questionnaires got like cool names. Um, <laughs> so this is domain-specific risk-taking um, 
questionnaire, which evaluates how likely a participant is to believe that they are to take risks across different domains. And two of them were uh, analyzed and found differences between monogamous and consensually non-monogamous slash open people. So the first one being ethical as measured by passing off someone else's work as your own and the other being social, speaking your mind on an unpopular issue at work with the higher scores, one extremely unlikely, seven extremely likely, the higher scores showing greater risk-taking propensity. And I'm sorry if that put you to sleep. I think it's really important. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> because those were the three areas where they found differences. Yes. Between monogamous participant responses and non-monogamous uh, or open respondents. Um, what what do you think about those findings before I wage war on it? <laughs> um, I, I was really um, finding myself lost in all of the different, um, as you said, fun named little, little, uh, you know, uh, ways they measured. Um, I definitely was like having to read around the brackets and like, wait, what are they asking here? Or what's going on? I, was not surprised by the findings, especially in the uh, perceived vulnerability to disease and the risk-taking space, mostly just based off the, you know, the amount of work that I've done in the non-monogamous community and, and also like knowing what the other moral, you know, hang-ups that some people would have um, and knowing like how society talks about these specific things. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't surprised at all. I definitely have notes in my in my um, margins that are along the lines of like, where's the education on like how, um, which they do talk about later in the in the conclusion about like how open conversations about risk taking actually mitigate a lot of the risks that people don't do in in or aren't normally going to do in what we have allowed to be the monogamous space of dating specifically and especially in American dating. So I don't, I don't think I was really surprised about any of the findings um, and, and, you know, re reminding listeners that this was a, you know, people went in on some social media sites and agreed to take a, what was a very long survey about these things. So it was, you know, self-disclosed and I'm sure there was like lots of different sh um, shame or, or really not understanding what the question was asking kind of stuff happening in this data collecting. Mm -hmm. um, I think that the, I want to speak more about, about what you feel about communication. Cause that's also something that I wrote down. So like in plain English, what they are saying they've found is that people in mo monogamous relationships reported a greater aversion to germs mm -hmm. and that, uh, people in monogamous relationships scored lowly, like lower on the social risk-taking and the mm -hmm. ethical risk-taking. When I looked at that and then looked at the questions that they asked, which is why I just like spoke about the very specific parts of it, <laughs> to me, I was like, if I had had more information about these people, I could have explained this in like many ways. Like mm -hmm. we could explain like point of origin, for example. I'm sure somebody who um, is from the States who has to pay out of pocket for healthcare probably is more risk, like more germ adverse than somebody who maybe comes from like, let's say Sweden, where they have a comprehensive national health service that doesn't require payment, right? Right. Independent of, of socioeconomic background. Whereas socioeconomic background within the US participants 
Like if I'd had that information, this could also explain that particular um, view. Um, and one of the things that I wrote about risk is that even without introducing those extra like indicators for covariance, um, you could explain a, a sort of not necessarily germ avoidance, but like a, a comfort, a literacy with germs based on like the qualitative experience of being in a non-monogamous multi-partner setup. Because like you have to talk about germs and bodily fluids and like like disease prevention and like disease mitigation and and stuff like that. Like you have to have these conversations more often if you are in multiple partner settings. And so therefore you might be more literate at having them and therefore less like less um, germ avoidant because you feel more confident in your ability to handle them. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And that's almost exactly, you know, the notes about the education I wish to give people um, about the amazing tools that there are in non-monogamy. I really, really um like fully agree with you that there are, you know, so many different factors. And one of them is just communicating openly and transparently about, you know, what does that word um, disease mean? What does the word germs mean? Uh, All of that. And um, I don't think that the questions they asked gave enough space to um, have those, but I understand why they, why they can't. Mm -hmm. I also thought about the questions relating to um, risk. So here the understanding that we're meant to take away from this is that people that are monogamous are less likely to risk um, themselves ethically by trying to like pass up something of their own and also less Mm. likely to risk socially uh, by speaking their mind about a stigmatized issue. Um, And then so conversely, people that are um, essentially non-monogamous and open, are more likely to do those things. So they're, they're less risk averse, they're, they're more risky. In, but then I was like, well, if you're in a healthy, functioning, multiple partner relationship where you are regularly communicating really difficult things, and maybe you're also 10 years older than you were when you were monogamous, because there is like, mm-hmm. as I've mentioned, a huge age difference, right? Maybe you are just more confident talking about difficult issues uh-huh. in a public forum like work. And also, like, if you're white, right, like, if you're white and you're, you're at your white place of work, then you're probably going to be more likely to, like, speak out about, like, a difficult issue, which has obviously now become quite pertinent, um, than if you are, like, the only black female, let's say, in the office. Like, uh, I, I would imagine that that would, that would change your, like, your your willingness to speak out on something that was highly stigmatized. So I guess what I'm saying is, again, there are other, there are other explanations to this than just like, oh, they happen to be in this non-monogamous relationship, but there also could be because they're in a non-monogamous relationship that they just interpret risk in a more like healthy, well-balanced way, Uh which I can wildly speculate on because I'm not a scientist. (laughs) So I will. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And I did think that, um, there was, you know, just because there is the, um, binary, which you have now explained that it is, it is a continuum with, within people's life spaces, but 
the um, fact that risk-taking is something that would be the fast life track more than the slow life track, you know, um, I, I feel like there's a little bit of bias in, in that risk-taking is something that is not good to do. But if we look at like quality of life and um, things in that way, I, you know, would definitely be interested to know um, how the people that are more willing to take more risks feel about their overall quality of life. I mean, let's bring it back to life theory because obviously this, this is this was their responses, and and then they they kind of drew that line, right? So then they said, okay, so these these three responses, if you are consensually non-monogamous or open, you're more likely to respond in a different way to these three responses, mm-hmm. these these three areas, right? So then they've said those three areas are fast life strategies. So mm-hmm. people who are living a, a, a more living in a more hostile work like environment, not work environment, general environment, or living a shorter life or living in a more competitive place, they are more likely to take risks and act risky. And they're also less likely to avoid germs. And the idea behind this in, in life history theory is that we do this for the indirect benefit that would have to our uh, babies, right? Like mm-hmm. you will go for something that indirectly benefits them, even if there is a direct cost to your health, right? Mm-hmm. So th- this is the theory. Like you might partake in risky sexual behavior, like very early in your reproductive years, because that is explained in life history theory as being uh, a good sort of like evolutionary bet. This means that you're going to be able to have kids, more kids. Um, even if it does mean that you directly receive abuse or illness or germs, right? Right. That you are on some level like evolutionary more likely to still do that, um, even though there is like a direct cost. So this is this is kind of like where this article takes this, this germ avoidance and these risk taking is they're like, those are fast life strategies. And I think you're completely right to be like, are they? <laughs> like, are they? <laughs> Yes. I mean, like, uh, they, they do say later in the discussion, like, just because something works, like, evolutionarily doesn't mean that, like, it still works now. Uh, and there, I should also say, like, life history theory is, is very contentious because of this point. Uh, it's, it's by no means, like, an accepted theory that everyone is, like, whole hog, whole hog behind. But, yeah, I, I'm definitely, like, with you to be, like, are they fast life theories? And even if they are, what what is this moral element to it? Right, right. I really, really liked the, um, so I know we are, because I printed the article before you sent the more, more succinct PDF version, so I apologize about that. But in the discussion section, um, the second paragraph that was really long, there was this quote that I really liked that reads, um, This suggests that those in CNM relationships regularly form long-term enduring relationships, but are perhaps selective about with whom they maintain those relationships. That is, people who form multi-partner relationships may desire and actively seek a variety of intimate partners, but only maintain partnerships if they are of high quality. And I definitely like under underline that and start it and was like yes that that makes a lot of sense i feel like they're yeah a lot less um willing to put up with 
things that don't align with values or with those germ aversion values or the risk-taking values um, um, if they are not high quality. <laughs> right. And it's funny that you, you've drawn that one out because I've also highlighted that exact sentence um, because I was like, that to me sounds like a slow life strategy. Mm-hmm. That's something you can only do if you have like an 80-year lifespan you know, 60 years of reproductive, let's say health or, or whatever, or maybe 50, um, depending on, on your personal like physiology. Um, and you like that, that to me is something that you can only do if you have like a lot of time and therefore has to be a slow life strategy. Right. It's kind of like conflating what, what was quite trendy in the seventies with, with life history theory, which was all of this, like explaining, uh, risky sexual behavior, which is not, no longer a term used because the the term risky is is a highly mor- moralistic issue right there. Um, but I think it's like conflating it, and consensual non monogamy is, is quite different from um, just just having lots and lots of sexual partners. That there is something qualitative, qualitatively different that for me would suggest that it is a like one that has to happen over a longer lifespan. And it also got me thinking, like if this is if this, if we're going to uh, buy into like a binary, so whatever is not this must be something else, mm. then does that mean that monogamy, and this is complete speculation on my part, but monogamy would be better suited to like the fast life category mm. of strategies, right? And the more I thought about this, the more I was like, actually, if you if you think about monogamy, it's like, it's a very dangerous bet, yes. right? You're betting on one person for a really long time. And statistically, women don't do well in monogamous like there's a lot of like abuse there's a lot of like partner abandonment child abandonment like you're really hedging all your eggs literally into one partner Uh to me it seems like a really really risky thing that would only make sense if you really only had one shot so let's say you only had 30 years and you were like i'm only gonna be able to make one relationship so i'm just gonna do it with one person right right so that's not what they're saying in this article, but as I said, I can wildly speculate on this because it's my podcast and I'm not the author of the paper. <laughs> Absolutely. I I agree with you um fully on that, you know. And um as you mentioned with like the with the data in the article, the, you know, there was a higher number of younger white American women um and Michigan is sometimes considered the Midwest, which is also where Minnesota is. And so I can, you know, speculate also on what the overall community push for what relationships, you know, should look like and are supposed to look like are happening and and programming people in those areas. Hmm. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the the morality and social ethics part of this, because I think that mm-hmm. whilst we have done quite a lot of work to kind of like shred apart their findings mm-hmm. and like question it, um, I think there is something to be said here about the what what I think really is enlightened view of destigmatizing CNM, which comes mm-hmm. comes through this. So the the basic framework here is that in our society, um, we morally condemn people that that employ fast life history strategies because they uh they that those those types of behaviors create social discord and social issues uh, and 
competition and things that are conducive if you have a fast life strategy, but not conducive if you are trying to adopt a slow life strategy. This is where the moral condemnation comes out. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I do believe that that is what the, what they're saying. Um, I do think that they're, you know, they're, they're taking into account what, what society is um, programming or what is saying, you know, that the moral, the moral right thing to do is, is monogamy. And this is why um, I think they're definitely pointing to those things in this section. Um, I really liked how they, you know, pulled out rural communities. They pulled out, as we mentioned before, not having um, access to um, therapy or people for helping with that. Um, they, you know, specifically talked about marginalization and mistreatment of people that choose to um, have multi-partner mating. Yeah, and they do also quite a good job of saying, like, even though this might be the perception of a potential phenomenon of me, so specifically that people will have bad relationship and health outcomes um, or like worse than monogamy, even though that's the, the perception, it's like a false perception because they bring in a lot of other resources where they've like categorically mm-hmm. proved um, within other studies that people have, um, people who are, are in a multi-partner dynamic, actually that's a better predictor of relationship functioning than monogamy and mm-hmm. people have they they really pull out quite a lot of positives uh they have well-developed guidelines for pursuing multi-partner relationships safely and ethically um they have safe sexual practices and are more likely to use those safe sexual practices than people in monogamous relationships they practice open communication honesty and emotional intimacy and consent seeking to reduce the threat of partner defection and resource diversion so they are they are really saying like this is a this isn't a problem with consensual monogamies it's like a it's a pr problem right yes yes exactly it is a pr problem for sure you know and that's just the you know programming and push of that of monogamy um specifically in in like america and then specifically in the midwest in america for sure and they even say quite explicitly that our results should not be interpreted as a support for condemnation against consensual monogamy Yes, I loved it. I, I was very glad they added that that piece there. Um, I think those are like kind of all of my, my key thoughts apart from one. Was there anything else that you, that you wanted to say about, about their findings and their, their kind of last uh, future directions, which I, I think we could probably spend some time talking about? I definitely was interested to know um, in there they mentioned or – you know, throughout the article, it seemed like they were talking about what they were like, what they were actually researching and, and the data that they had. But in that in the section close to the end of the article, in the limitations and future direction space, they specifically mentioned sub-Saharan and Muslim populations and polygamy, you know, only in like two sentences um, and then didn't really come back to it. And I understand they were, you know, it's in the limitations and future direction section. So that would be kind of where it would be. But it was very, it threw me off very much that they would have used that an example and then um, put it in there because to me that, um, you know, there's so many layers there. Um, it's a completely different culture, a different part of the world. And um, polygamy is not 
um, the same thing as consensual non-monogamy. And so it was very interesting to me that they referenced that in that section. Yeah, I was also really thrown by this. And I, I've, uh, long-term listeners will know, like, I've, I've lived a lot of my life in sub-Saharan Africa um, and dated in that communities. Um, and except, like, I, I have um, anecdotal experience only. Uh, it is a part of, like, the, the world that's often pointed to as, like, oh, well, we're not that. Right. Um, but I think you know, what they're saying is like, oh, this is an example of times when when consensual non-monogamy like produces social disharmony. Um, and, and then I was like really annoyed because I was like, yes, maybe, but this is also part of the world that doesn't necessarily have like access to legal recourse or uh, social services for those places where there's issues with access to education specifically for girls and women and poverty. And like, you can't just put this in to kind of like, it felt a bit like beefing up the the one side of the argument in a kind of uh, quite quite a lazy way. Absolutely. I was disappointed with that addition because the rest of the future directions, I was like, yes, that, I'm here for it. And that part, I was like, why? Yes, why? I, I think I, I wrote in very scribbled, like, why was this here? <laughs> I mean, I'm definitely going to go and read the, the the four articles that they've they've added into that section, but probably only so I can be like, yeah, I'm right. So I think in closing, I, I just had one more thought, which is that research generally is like really obsessed with the structure of consensual non-monogamy yeah. as the taxonomy mm-hmm. that we've already mentioned. But just like monogamy, it can be done well and it can be done badly. It can lead to abuse and it can lead to fulfillment. So I really liked how they were talking about the qualitative interests of what actually it's like to be in a consensually non-monogamous partnered situation uh, and to use that as a basis for further research, which is something that they really specifically focus on at the very end of this article. So I think that for me was like a very strong way to end this, this article. Yes, yes, I really liked I liked that in that in that sentence specifically that was, you know, given existing evidence that CNM relationships are not short-lived, can improve relationship satisfaction and functioning and are no more likely to involve unsafe sexual practices than monogamous relationships. Um I really liked how they how they started that sentence and thought that they wrapped it up very very well. You can find Polly Pages on Instagram at Polly Pages. And if you have any questions or comments for us, please feel free to send them to polypages at gmail.com. Our awesome intro and outro music is by Mint Green, and you can follow them on Instagram and Linktree at Mint Green Music. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Books.